Thank you for downloading this episode of Software Gone Wild, a podcast focused on everything software defined. To get more episodes and explore other SDN and network automation resources, visit sdn.ipspace.net. In the last Software Gone Wild podcast, we discussed the challenges of routing in highly meshed leaf and spine fabrics within data centers. And we already explored one of the proposals how to solve this problem, namely Rift. Today, we're talking with Russ White, author of Open Fabric. And as always, to keep me honest, here are Chris Young and Nick Buraglio. And Russ, let's start with the same question I asked in the previous podcast. Why isn't ISIS or BGP good enough? Okay, well, let's start with the BGP question, because that's always the more entertaining, because that will be more shocking to your listeners. <laughs> okay, I'm all for shocking. <laughs> it, gets, it gets your listener count up, is what it does, Yvonne. I'm not paid by the eyeballs. <laughs> <laughs> you should be. So, generally speaking... You know, this all really started with the move to BGP in the data center fabric many, many years ago, which has become kind of the standard thing, right? So people tend to think of BGP as being the ideal data center routing protocol. You don't have an IGP, you just have BGP. Well, what's interesting is, is that if you look around you in the larger world, at the hyperscalers in particular, of course, the BGP thing started with hyperscalers. So now you look at what the hyperscalers are doing, and many of them are looking at something other than BGP for their data center fabrics. Now you look at Google, they're doing Firepath and their SDN-ish stuff. We've overused the word SDN or the concept of SDN to the point that it's almost meaningless now. Hey, you know, Yvonne, this is an SDN podcast. Well, it's a podcast about everything, and we try not to curse with three-letter words. <laughs> but but SDN is everything, so therefore this is an SDN podcast. I, I heard it referred to that SDN, we've always done SDN, which is spreadsheet-defined networking, because anytime anybody asks us for anything. No, no, uh, let's be realistic. I still have an old picture of an AGS Plus with a flash card on top saying, what do you think was in that flash? It was software. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> software. So, so anyway, so you know, Google has their Firepath thing with um, which is SDN-ish, and then we have now Facebook is doing OpenR or is playing with OpenR. Uh, they are actually deploying it in some places. It would be entertaining to get Petter on to talk about OpenR, but I don't think Facebook lets him talk to anybody. It's one of those social media things. That uh, yeah, they're a black hole. They don't let Petter out. You have to be blessed and, you know, by the corporate marketing and legal and whatever, and then you can go somewhere and talk for an hour and not take any questions, and uh, then you disappear back into the black hole and the event horizon swallows you. <laughs> yeah, so anyway, Facebook is doing open R, so a lot of people are starting to ask, so what's up with this, right? Why are the, the hyperscalers thinking about moving away from BGP. And like I should say, LinkedIn is doing uh, a link state protocol as well, which is open fabric. So why is, why is this happening? What's going on here? And I would have to start with saying that there are a couple of things happening. The first is, is that we keep making BGP the trash can of the internet. We just keep throwing stuff at it, and we hope that it all works. And 
we're getting to the point where BGP code in iOS is probably just as big as iOS used to be. <laughs> there comes a point when you need to start thinking, maybe it's time to build another one rather than to continue building on the one that you have kind of a thing. This is a, you know, one of those complexity theory situations or one of those problems with Agile. So that's one thing that's going on. Another thing that's going on is we're starting to rethink the whole concept of complexity. It used to be that the ideal thing in a data center was that you would just throw all of your policy into the control plane. BGP is neat because you can do traffic engineering with it. And you can do lots of traffic engineering with it. You have communities, you have filters, you have all sorts of cool, neat stuff that you can do because, of course, it's designed to be an interdomain routing protocol all rather than an intradomain. All the knobs. All the knurt knobs, as we would say. All the intent you need. All the intent you need. Now we're an intent-driven SDN podcast. Sorry. Wait, wait. <laughs> cloud. Somebody say cloud. <laughs> I meant Oh, to do if that. you have a BGP route reflector running in the cloud. <laughs> <laughs> With intent-driven. Yes. There you go. No, no, you need, you need two of them, because then it would be microservices cloud. <laughs> Let's drop the in. mic, buddy. Just drop the <laughs> mic. You won. Instrumented <laughs> with SNMP, baby. <laughs> Had to get in nice. there, didn't it? <laughs> yeah, Chris and you can configure it either with Telnet API, or you can send an SNMP write request, which will then trigger TFTP configuration file download. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Yeah, but the right request is full of regular expressions, just for, so we're clear. <laughs> because after all, it wouldn't be SDN if it wasn't regular expressions. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, what's happening now is people are starting to rethink this whole idea of shoving all their policy into the control plane. And they're starting to think hey, maybe this SDN idea is not so bad. Maybe there's something we can use this SDN idea for. For instance, in the case of Open Fabric, what we're thinking about is separating reachability and topology discovery from our concept of policy. So we actually have a policy overlay. And I think you're seeing this also happen with OpenR. If you look at the architecture of OpenR, they have essentially what is a pub-sub as well as this distributed database that allows them to push policy directly into the control plane or into a side channel on the control plane, if you will, that allows you just to keep the control plane separate or the policy separate from discovering reachability and discovering topology changes. So I think that's part of the reason that people are looking at these types of link state solutions is that we're just all kind of tired of the community overload and all the stuff we're doing in BGP and trying to get BGP to do everything. Um, and beyond which, using BGP everywhere and the BGP code base is getting really big and people are starting to wonder maybe it's time to build something different. Okay, so we went to BGP from OSPF and ISIS because we needed something that would scale beyond the last time we discussed around 100 routers. And now we came to a point where we said, yes, it is a solution, but it's like the worst possible solution. Can we do better? <laughs> no, it's not the worst possible solution. It is, it well, is true. That's rip. No, rip. it is the least bad solution. <laughs> 
for this particular application, it probably is the least bad solution. It's it's an interdomain routing protocol, and we're trying to use it as an IGP. I mean, I know we like hacks and networking, but this is kind of the hack to beat all hacks. Not but, quite. But SNMP think, might be better. <laughs> I, I do think there's parts of BGP that as like OSPF is magic. You turn it on, and as long as you're within the same you know broadcast domain, the multicast magic happens, and woohoo, look, I've got 15. So I think that the fact that looking at a configuration, I know exactly how many BGP peers I should have. That's interesting. I think the fact that internally, if we look at the, the whole idea of perimeter security that we know is all gone, right? That doesn't make any sense. The fact that you can use a routing protocol and actually, you know, that was designed for untrusted endpoints to talk to each other. I think there's other parts of BGP that make it interesting, at least bad. Yeah. And, and yes, and that's true. And of course, you also, on the other side, have to do all of this configuration and or you have to automate all that configuration or you have to work BGP around doing things like neighbor discovery, which it was never designed to do. So it's kind of weird, this whole concept of neighbor discovery with point-to-point -point links, right? Or with point-to-point -point TCP sessions. It's kind of this odd meshing of concepts that go on. So it is true that it's designed for an untrusted domain. But remember that trust domains are, again, a matter of policy. And I'm not trying to get rid of the policy. I'm just trying to move it out of BGP. I'm just trying to move it out of the routing protocol. So I still want those trust domains, and I still want those trust boundaries and stuff. And, and by the way, this is part of the reason that we look at ISIS, is because ISIS, even though it's designed as an IGP, it runs on top of layer two. There's no IP involved, which is really, really sweet from a security perspective. There's a couple of other things that are, you know, parallels with ISIS and BGP that are often overlooked and that, you know, they have this notion of the pluggable protocols, right? So you can add an LRI into BGP and then now it carries this other thing, low spec or V6 or if you're crazy, multicast traffic, you know, and then ISIS has the same notion of the TLVs, right? So you can extend it, but it doesn't have that yeah. manual process required to set it up in so much that, you know, you can configure it and it will form adjacencies rather than, you know, I have to tell BGP where the other neighbor is. Right, right. And you're right. I mean, one of the reasons we looked at ISIS at LinkedIn when we first started looking at this is because of the extensible TLV format. Way back in the day when OSPF was invented, it was invented for Motorola 68000 processors, which had you know, 8-bit registers and the smallest possible amount of memory you can imagine. And no layer 2 cache or anything. Oh, 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 not the 68,000s. They, they had 32-bit registers, but let's not go there. Oh, okay. Okay. Further further back then, I'm sorry. Further back than the 68,000. <laughs> Whatever they were, they had 8-bit registers. So OSPF was designed for this very, very constrained memory and processing requirement. ISIS was designed essentially to run on hosts. People don't realize that, but there is this thing called ESIS, which was designed to run on host. And so you would route through host. So therefore, there was a lot more, not necessarily processing power, but there was a lot more memory and other things like that. You were a lot less constrained. So it was a much more pure protocol in the sense of it uses TLVs rather than fixed-link fields. Now, I should caption all that with, okay, OSPF is moving towards TLVs. There is an entire set of LSAs that are TLV-based. They aren't widely deployed, but they are out there. Wow. Welcome to 20 years ago, OSPF. <laughs> Why so, not? The rest of the networking industry is there. Yeah, exactly. So, Fair point. Fair point. 
there is this concept that, of course, you can go all the way to the other end, which is what OpenR does, and just says, use a generic database rather than even building your own database distribution protocol. This has some really interesting properties, but it's kind of to the other extreme, whereas OSPF is extremely optimized to run in a networking environment. Something like OpenR, and they just use, what is it, ZeroMQ, right? Or is it Rabbit? I think it's ZeroMQ. It's not Yeah, Rabbit. whichever. Doesn't matter. Yeah, whichever it is. It's, it's, it's a distributed database that's open source and widely available. It's a cool idea to do that, but it, it's not optimized at all for this particular environment, right? It's not optimized at all for carrying routing information. Yeah, but the, the first question on, on this particular topic would be, do we still need optimization? So this is where I think we get into that I think you do need some optimization, but maybe not as optimized as OSPF is. Maybe there's an intermediate spot here someplace. And, and, I, and I think the other question in my mind is, who is the, when you say we, who's the we? Because the, all the companies, <laughs> the, the FANG that we've talked about so far are, like, and, and I totally, I agree with you 100%, some people are special. There are some, yeah. some places where that the network, if that is your core business or offers your business some core differentiation, yes, optimize to your heart's content. Oh, do you really want to get started on this topic? <laughs> no, that's a different podcast. <laughs> yeah, but I'm, I'm like for, you know, for Nick's, Nick's home network, for my home network, I'm like, is BGP good enough? Uh, I'm sure it's missing some automation uh, knobs, but yeah. Yeah, but I'm sure the question is, is OSPF good enough? Because BGP could actually be overkill for your network. So it, Yeah, it is. OSPF is good enough. <laughs> we found some place where OSPF is good enough. Oh, RIP is, is good enough for Chris's home network. <laughs> it's you good enough if there's no other options. Friends don't let friends run RIP. Oh, they ask for RIP version 2, you're right. <laughs> Routing yeah. by rumor is yeah. never welcome around my house. Well, but that's what BGP is, too. BGP is a path vector protocol. So it's, it's still a distance vector. It still fall, falls under radius concept of... It's a form of distance vector, so it still falls under the radius concept of routing by rumors. Well, mm, we, can have that, we can have that discussion another time, I think. I think you're <laughs> right, but I think there are, there's an arm length of caveats that I would assert there. Yeah, of that, course. Of course. That's another podcast. Okay. Yeah. Just one comment, Nick. Uh, was the first route selection criteria in BGP? The default one. You want to know the answer to that? Yeah. You know the answer to that. Oh, dude, I don't memorize anything I can look up. Are you kidding me? It's AS path length, right? Right. So what's the route selection criteria in RIP? Uh, I don't know. Turn it on. But I haven't used RIP in like 20 years, man. Count. So what's the difference? <laughs> the difference is, by default, you turn on RIP. It forms an adjacency and just starts blasting the routes that it has. Whereas in BGP... You turn it on, you configure the neighbors, and it started blasting the routes that it has. Yes, exactly. But you have to consciously <laughs> form that adjacency, so there's very little um, opportunity for... Like, I forgot to disable RIP on this interface, and somebody turned on a host that's running RIPD, and all of a sudden I've got poison route table. With the caveat that but everyone leaves the global yes. table yes. to somebody at some point. Now, I agree with you. Let's move on. <laughs> I was going to say the other thing is that, statistically speaking, I would hazard to guess the people who turn BGP on actually understand what it's doing a little bit, at least. Mm, that's a stretch. <laughs> that's a stretch. <laughs> I, I, 
Next question. So this actually brings up an interesting point because um, what you're talking about, Nick, is really the difference between the transport of the protocol of the routing information and the actual computation of the path, which it brings us back to data centers, right? Because one of the differences between BGP and IS2IS is IS2IS has these LS has an LSDB as a database. So one of the cool things, if I'm thinking about splitting my policy for my reachability, is I really want an LSDB. Now I can do this with BGPLS if I want to. Why would you do this on every router in your network? I don't know, but that's what you would have to do, right? You'd have to talk to every router, and you have to build an LSDB off of everybody so that you can run a controller that has a God's eye view of the network. Whereas with IS to IS, I have this view of the network. It's just built in. It's just part of the protocol. So that's one of the attractions of doing something like IS to IS. Okay. So uh, stepping back like a zillion steps. You keep talking about policy and you mentioned traffic engineering. So let's deal with traffic engineering first. How realistic is that in highly meshed leaf and spine topologies? How many people actually use some reasonable traffic engineering in leaf and spine topologies? So the biggest reason you have for traffic engineering in a, a leaf and spine topology is the so-called elephant flows and mouse flows. So the real reason for traffic engineering is that you can't deploy multi-path uh, iSCSI or MPTCP on the end hosts. Mm, not, I'm not really sure I would push it that far because when you're transferring a Hadoop job from one pod to another pod, it doesn't really matter. So you're saying if you used iSCSI, then you would just have everything ECMP spread across the whole network anyway. Well, there is multipath TCP, which is generic. iSCSI is obviously application level. Yes. And uh, there are people who do something like the academics from University of Louvain did with Flowbender. They would tweak uh, something that influences the hash. They use TTLs. Other people use IPv6 flow labels. And that helps you move your session around till you hit a path that is less congested, which you measure with ECM bits. Right. So you could do that. The other way you could do it is to have a bandwidth broker that the Hadoop job or whatever job is moving around that's big or can latch on to the bandwidth broker and say, hey, I'm about to move you know, X number of terabits of data. Can you please give me a clear path? And then you actually use something like segment routing. Uh, which one is less complex? Well, I think they have trade-offs. <laughs> yes. <laughs> How many balloons fit in a bag? <laughs> I think there's an implied level of complexity anytime you even start the conversation about traffic engineering, right? It's, you know, whatever your needs and requirements are, need to take into account the fact that you know, traffic engineering is hard. I mean, it's it's complicated. I want to say it's hard. It's complicated. There's a lot of movement. yes. Well, it's 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 MP complete to start with, if not MP hard. Yes, it's MP. Yes, yes. Yeah. It's MP complete to start with. Yes. So 
I think it depends on the applications and stuff like this. There are also other places where you're not just talking about traffic engineering, but you're talking about security zones and the ability to divide pieces of the network off. And if I have video stuff, it is sometimes nice to be able to, you know, just do other things where you can carry video on specific paths or grab a specific subset of paths and make them video only or something like this. So there are some reasons that are nice to do traffic engineering. Just put it that way. So assuming that you need this or you want this or you would like to have this, it's nice to have a controller that has an LSDB that can see everything in the network. Oh, that's a prerequisite. Yes, that's a prerequisite, yes. If you don't know what a topology is and what the loads and the links are, how will you do traffic engineering? That's exactly right. Yep, exactly. So that's where an LSDB comes in. So if you have a protocol that gives you LSDB like IS to IS, it makes sense just to start from that. Now, the second part of the problem we were talking about way back with Nick is this concept of flooding. Like the idea that RIP, you just turn it on and it floods or it sends stuff. It doesn't really flood. It just sends its information to its neighbors and BGP doesn't. So flooding is probably the part where people get concerned. It's not so much the SPF. Uh, we had this argument way, way back when we did fast reroute over a thing called NotVIA, over the requirement to do SPF to run Dijkstra, uh, do the computational requirements of doing Dijkstra in a network with a lot of nodes. Now, there used to be a thing, you know, Yvonne, earlier you said something about uh, 100 routers in an area or a flooding domain. In reality, on Cisco's website, on CCO, there was in the OSPF documentation that said you could not put more than 50 routers in a flooding domain. I remember that. Couldn't happen. Yeah, and three areas per router, yes. And three, yes, and three areas per router, that's correct. So I've seen some rather convoluted network designs trying to work around no more than 50 routers in a network or in a flooding domain and no more than three areas per router. So it's kind of silly. I actually saw people do redistribution between OSPF flooding domains. Like they would have a super area zero that was redistributed into because they didn't want to break these rules. So talk about complexity trade-offs. That's quite a bizarre thing. So way back when we started talking about fast reroute, you would run into these people who would say, well, you can't run large flooding domains in a network, in a, in a link state protocol. And the number one reason was because SPF just takes too long. Well, Mike Chan and, and Stuart and a bunch of people got together and started looking at this problem, and they optimized out the IS to IS code so that they could run an SPF, a Dijkstra calculation in just a few milliseconds. And it turned out that you could run thousands of Dijkstra calculations very, very quickly. So this opens up the concept of using constrained SPF, of doing all sorts of things that nobody thought you could do before. So this kind of blows open the door of, I can't run Dijkstra across 1,000 nodes with 100,000 routes. Sure you can. First of all, 100,000 routes are all leaf nodes. I really don't care about them. They really don't impact my Dijkstra runtime. At least they don't in IS to IS. And the number of nodes, 1,000 nodes running Dijkstra across 1,000 nodes, well, who cares? This is maybe 200 milliseconds instead of 10 milliseconds or whatever it is. It's just not that big of a deal. So you are aiming to get something where you could run 1,000 nodes in a flooding domain. Yeah, and should I say, this is already occurring. One of the points that I've made in this entire concept of Open Fabric and looking at Rift and looking at OpenR and everything else is that even 10 years ago, large transit providers were running 5,000 nodes in a single flooding domain. 
running ISDIS. Now, they didn't have 100,000 routes. And, of course, most data centers don't have 100,000 routes. I just throw that number out because that's pretty much what you can... No, but routes are the last point. They are like... Yeah, exactly. That doesn't matter. Yes, that's It's linear. So I just throw 100,000 out because what does the Tomahawk 2 support? Right. It's like 80,000, 100,000, depending on how you have things done. So it's a convenient number. Yeah, the other discussion we had the last time was around the flooding challenges in uh, highly meshed uh, leaf and spine fabrics. Right. Because uh, when something changes, you know, every leaf floods that to all the spines, and then the spines flood that to all the other leaves as it should work, and then the leaves start flooding that back to all the other spines. Right. So that's the other problem, right? So actually, a routing protocol has two parts. One is calculating shortest paths. The other is flooding information to calculate shortest paths on, right? So when you talk about RIP, you talk about you just send everything you know. When you talk about BGP, you send everything you know, but only to specific neighbors, which actually allows BGP to scale better. BGP also is based on TCP, so TCP is stream-based, hence it tends to scale better. It may converge more slowly, but it will scale better. So this is just one of those trade-offs you make. In terms of IS to IS, you run into the same problems you do with OSPF, which is you have this huge flooding domain, you have a thousand routers. So if you look at a 16-way ECMP, maybe each router gets 32 to 64 copies of each LSP or each LSP fragment. It's not really an LSP, it's an LSP fragment, but that's another entire discussion to have. Anyway, so you, you may get 16, 32, whatever it is, depending on timing. It could be really nasty. You get a bunch of copies of a single LSP. The way Open Fabric solves this is to make some modifications around flooding and the way flooding occurs in IS to IS. And these modifications are actually not something new. If you go way back about five years, there is this concept called mobile ad hoc networks. And if anybody's worked around the mobile ad hoc world, you probably remember that five or six years ago, maybe 10 years ago now, there was an effort to push into OSPF, which is available in Cisco IOS code, by the way, an entire set of modifications to OSPF that make it work well in this kind of randomized, I'm just going to throw stuff out and, and make it just work. Now, today we would probably deploy Babel, right? I hope Julius doesn't listen to this, but Babel, which is EIGRP in another form but anyway because <laughs> if Julius hears me say that he gets bad but anyway <laughs> so there was this whole push on to do this type of stuff so there was a set of extensions designed to OSPF which you can read about they're in RFCs I guess I could go look them up for you and put them in the show notes if you want me to Yvonne about how to make this work and there are some very basic concepts there one of which is neighbor's neighbor so you don't flood to everybody you actually use the link state database to figure out who your neighbor's neighbors are, and you choose a designated reflutter or someone designated who's one hop away from you who you know can reach all of your two-hop neighbors, and you flood just to them. You flood to everybody, but you flood to them, and you allow them in some method to reflood to everybody else. So that reduces the flooding in one direction. If you think about the fabric starting from T0 and going to T1, T2, T1, T0, edge to edge in a five-stage spine and leaf, and whether it's a benet or a butterfly or whatever you want to call it, you can kind of reduce your forward flooding by doing this. So you're reducing the flooding coming from T0 towards T1 up through the tree from the point at which the change occurs, right? 
This is a simple concept. On the way back, it, since it's a symmetric topology, it's actually much simpler to figure out who not to flood to on the way back. Um, so this is something that Nikos came up with uh, at LinkedIn, is that all you do is you just don't flood back along your shortest path tree back to the place where the change occurred. Because you assume that anything behind you, between you and the point where the origin is of the change, has already been covered in terms of flooding by someone else. There's a potential race condition there. Yes, 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 yes. No, there is a race condition. I, I agree. Guaranteed there are race conditions where this is a problem. But barring the race conditions, you can get down to one or two copies of the LSP fragment at every IS in the entire fabric. Why does that feel like split horizon? Because it is. It I mean, is. A little. Because yeah. it is. It is We're split horizon. Rip. It's called RPF <laughs> check. Welcome to multicast. <laughs> Yes, exactly. That's exactly what it is. It's just a fancy way of computing it. There's two fancy ways of computing it is what it is. That's correct. Well, split horizon is one part. There's another part, which is neighbors, neighbors. But yes. Now, for the race condition, that is solved through the standard CSNP process in ISIS. So every periodically, you're going to send a CSNP that's going to tell everybody what your database looks like. And so if you see something that somebody else does not see or you don't see something that somebody else has, then you send a request for it. Uh. You send a PSNP and you catch up. So there is a chance for loops in that race condition, right? There is a chance for bad things happening. But this is true with ISIS or OSPF anyway. Okay, so you hope that your tricks work. But you don't trust yourself, <laughs> so every now and then you do this sanity check. And if your tricks didn't work, then between the time your trick failed and the time you do sanity check, you will have either black holes or loops or partial reachability or something. That's, That's exactly the best it. description of networking in general I've ever heard. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's good. <laughs> Ivan, you need to tweet that. <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> oh, goodness. That's bad. But it is true, right? I mean, PGP does the same thing. It's still belt and suspenders. Yeah. I still, I, still, I still hope that my trick works. But if my trick didn't work, well, I still have backup plans for my trick not working. Now, if we slowly try to move a little bit forward. You mentioned that you have these different tiers in the fabric. And I remember a discussion we had a while ago, or maybe it was several discussions over a number of beers, how you could automatically figure out at which tier in the fabric you are. Yeah. Did you make any progress on that one? Yeah, there are actually two or three different ways. Two are covered in the draft. Um, one of which is you assume that you're in a five-stage fabric, specifically a five-stage cloth, not just a spine and leaf, but it has to be a full-on cloth. And you can compute based on the five stages. The other way that's much more reliable because it works, I think, in every topology unless there are crosslinks, which we haven't totally figured out the crosslink problem. But see, crosslinks are another entire problem in spine and leaf fabrics. I don't think you should do them. Um, I think they are a bad idea. If you're going to do crosslinks, I think they should be handled by the controller, and they should be a cut-through path that the controller uses 
using traffic engineering mechanisms, and it shouldn't be something that you do normally uh, because there are are lots of reasons for that. But anyway. Uh, Yeah, unfortunately, you need them for VPC peer links or AMLAC peer links. You said a really dirty word there. I'm sorry. Yeah. Another three-letter curse, (laughs) I know. (laughs) Except in this case, it's a four-letter curse. You know, when I was working on EIGRP, we always used to say, you know, we don't let our children talk about four-letter routing protocols. (laughs) Nice. So for for clarity purposes, cross-links meaning what for this discussion? Leaf-to-leaf. Perfect. Or spine-to-spine. Or super spine to super spine. Most often they're put in in T1 to T1 spine level. So not your top of rack, but one stage back from the top of rack is typically where they're put in. Okay, so there are two reasons you would need them. On the leaf level, you need them for MLAC. Mm-hmm. Right. On the spine level, you need them if you want to summarize from the spine to the leaves. That's correct. And you're afraid that uh, some failures will re- result in black holing due to summarization, and then you need sort of an equalization layer on the spine. That's right. Now, and the answer to that is obviously just don't summarize. Exactly. I mean, how many routes do you really have? In your underlay or your overlay. If you have two layers, if you have an underlay and an overlay, how many routes do you really have? You know. Well, it depends on whether the applications are smart enough that they can renumber and use service discovery, also known as DNS, or whether the applications uh, are the IP address huggers and want to carry their IP address around with them. Yes, but in that case, you can, many years ago, Daniel uh, Walton wrote this little bit of code that was never actually been deployed any place that I know of, where he walked through the BGP table and he figured out that just using rib compression at the BGP table level, he could reduce the internet table size, the DFZ's table size, by about 30% and lose no real routing information. Yeah, that's what Jeff Houston publishes on his wall of shame every week or so, and it never, ever persuaded anyone to clean up their mess. I know, But you could do the same thing between the rib and the bib. So even if you have 250,000 routes or 300,000 routes or whatever it happens to be in your rib, that doesn't mean you have to have that many routes in your fib. That's true. It's called virtual aggregation. Yeah. So, th- so there are solutions to that problem as well that don't involve putting cross-links between your spine routers. So, Yvonne, you can answer this question for me. Why do we call them switches? They don't switch, they route. Oh, I actually got the answer to this question years ago at Interop. <laughs> Someone wanted to be first in a product category, and Cisco was first in routing and Ethernet switching. So they invented a new category just so that they, their products would be first in. They would have the. They would be number one in market share in the switching category. Honest to God. I figured it had something to do with marketing. I remember when I when I would do um, iOS architecture sessions at Cisco Live, and people would say, "What's the difference between a router and a switch, or a layer three switch and a router?" And I would always say, "Marketing, because exactly. obviously <laughs> there is a ditty." So the other way that you can do this is you can label one box, have one box identify itself as a T zero, and then you can once you 
have one device identify itself as a T0, you can use SPF to figure out what tier you are at bouncing off of that single box. Um, it actually doesn't matter which T0 you go off of. You have to bounce off of any T0. So once one box has identified itself as a T0, it's manually configured as a T0, all the other T0s can figure out their T0s, their top-of-rack switches, and then everybody else can figure out what tier they're at in the fabric, what stage they're at in the fabric, what area they're at, by bouncing off of a T0. So you just set all your link costs to one, run SPF to T0, run SPF from the T0 you just ran to, making sure you don't run back through yourself. And the total, the longest path from that guy minus the path from you to the T0 is your tier number. It's pretty simple. It's actually explained in the draft. So effectively, you're putting the root of the spanning tree onto a leaf switch. Yes, you're building a spanning tree to the leaf switch, figuring out the depth of that spanning tree, and then from the leaf switch, figuring out a spanning tree to the long, the longest hop spanning tree in the network. And that gives you where you are in the network, tier-wise. And, and that assumes a standard topology. Well, yeah, I mean, it assumes the spine and leaf. It assumes the spine and leaf of some type with no crosslinks. There may be ways of solving it with crosslinks, but we haven't figured out how yet. There are a couple of paths we're looking at. But again, I really have heartache with crosslinks for all the reasons we just said. So it's not like high on my list in my to doist. <laughs> it's not like a P1 to figure out crosslinks. <laughs> if you can force your application people to actually do the right thing, then, then yeah, it's not high on the list. Well, MLAGs wouldn't be a problem. MLAGs are a different problem, right, between the, between the leaf switches. If it's an MLAG, it should just look like the same Ethernet connected at two points on the network. Where you get into real problems is in the T1, if you have links between the T1s. And that comes down to telling the application people not to hog IP address and not having to host route everywhere. Or pushing all of that work into the overlay, which would probably be... BGP and VPNs. At, at the risk of, of coming up with another podcast topic, does that include um, host-based routing for things like containers? Sure, sure. Why not? It just depends on your route count and how happy you are with that route count. Yeah, but uh, Chris, with containers, usually for you sure. don't uh, grab an IP address and uh, hang on to it for the rest of your life. It's my IP address. So you give each host a slash 64 prefix and right. Right. then within that slash 64, the host can have zillions of containers. There are many IP addresses in the world that look like this one, but this one is mine. I am keeping it forever. <laughs> By the way, I, I was listening to a podcast once when someone explained how every host gets a slash 64 for containers and then advertises a slash 64 to the rest of the network, uh, yada, yada, yada. And I was like, hey, guys, you did yes. reinvent OSI, right? With ESIS exactly. and so on. <laughs> exactly. Yes, this reminds me of radio. We need you to be able to bridge two Ethernet segments. Why would you want to do that? <laughs> I, I once had a customer where that was the answer. We can't summarize. We can't subnet out your network because this one particular um, tenured professor has 
an IP address, and it's actually it is his IP address, public facing, and he doesn't want to change the subnet mask on his Vax. <laughs> That's why I deployed uh, local area mobility on an AGS plus at a university. <laughs> Uh, You're braver than I. That's when I said, I can't help you with that. That's above my pay grade. (laughs) First of all, he's got a vax. (laughs) What would even make you think in any world at all that he'd be willing to change anything? The dude's still running a vax. Like I said, I stopped the conversation (laughs) at this point. (laughs) I probably would have shed one single tear. I would have heard that. <laughs> this, this is why networking engineers drink. Right here. This is it. <laughs> okay, coming back to Open Fabric. So you know where in the topology you are. Uh, neighbors are discovered, I'm guessing, with the standard ISIS procedures. Yeah. You've mm-hmm. modified flooding. Uh, you edit a few TLVs of your own so that you totally separate uh, endpoint reachability from the core topology. Anything else? That's true of ISIS anyway. It's already separated in ISIS. In fact, one of the neat things about running ISIS is if I didn't need to be able to reach the, the fabric routers for management, I wouldn't even need IP on them. True. Because everything can, everything can just run that way. That's how Trill works. That's right. That's how Trill works. Or doesn't work. Sorry. Uh, okay. Back to open fabric. <laughs> sorry, so, sorry. What? What? So then you goes... <laughs> Back to open fabric. <laughs> so, so then you build a controller that uses something like PSEP, something like I2RS, whatever your your game is, and. Uh, maybe you push everything into Kafka. I don't know, depending on what you want to do with it. And you build SR label stacks and push them to the top of routers, layer three switches, whatever you want to call them. And that gives you all of your ability to do traffic engineering and stuff like that. So you can run constrained SPF in the controller, push a label stack to the top of rack or into the host, as the case might be. I mean, some hosts might be able to run agents, right? Some may not. Just depends on the host. Ah, so you build the topology, you have the default uh, endpoint reachability, you have the default routing table, and then you use segment routing for exceptions. That's right. That's exactly right. And the nice thing about that is you can push segment routing all the way across your core, so you can actually use it for inter-DC traffic engineering. And if you get some application that wants layer two, you can say, good for you, if you give me a label stack from your host, I will be glad to carry that through my network, but I'm sorry we don't support Layer 2 on our network. Ah, so you do ingress uh, label prepending of his Mac, header, Mac frame, and then mm-hmm. you just spit it out on the other end. That's exactly right. So you, re- you reinvented pseudo-wires. That's exactly right. Next Luca step, Martini. BPLS. That's right. Luca Martini will be proud. <laughs> Nick will run it in his house. <laughs> hey, if I can, but I'm gonna be I'm gonna be honest, man. Russ, you had me at segment routing. <laughs> Russ, I'm guessing this is the MPLS variant of segment routing, right? Um, I'm not really sure yet. I mean, all of this is still in flux within LinkedIn, 
So I'm not really sure exactly which direction we're going to go. IPv6 segment routing or V6SR has some really nice properties that I like. Apart from not being available in any reasonably fast hardware. Yes, <laughs> yes, that that yeah. is the downside. That's the downside. Well, I mean, you were you were talking about it in in the terms of label stacks and stuff. So you know, yes. given the experience I have with segment routing, and I was, uh, you know, like you said, Yvonne, there's a lot of really, or maybe Russ said, there's a lot of really compelling things around the V6 stack. The downside is, you're right, there's like nothing that supports it yet. Although I think it's roadmapped on some pretty high-end carrier gear. That doesn't yeah. really solve your problem with the data center, right? Because all that stuff's merchant, and it's, you know, stuffing a bunch of IPv6 addresses in a header is expensive. That's exactly right, yeah. The, the really nice thing about V6SR, the really, really nice thing is, is you don't mess with the label stack edge to edge. So when you get to any point in the network, you can pull the packet off of a router anywhere or a wire, any place, and you can tell exactly where it's gone in the network. And that's really nice. Yeah, and PLSSR doesn't give you that. That's true, because you're losing labels as you move forward. Exactly right. Yep. The upside yeah, to the MPLS right. SR is I can do it today, right? So. Yes, that is. Yeah, that is correct. Yeah. Nick, uh, there's this slight challenge of a really low number of labels you can push on ingress node with Merchant Silicon. Well, so there's a label stack depth issue in a lot of hardware. You know, they've whether it be a soft limit or a hard limit based on you know the hardware. The most I've ever seen, I think, is like eight. Yeah, and I think that Merchant Silicon has like three or something. Yeah, most three or four. Have between three and five. Yeah, three or four most of the time. That's correct. But now, if you think about it, right, do you really need more than three or four? You know, moving down the whole concept of segment routing in something like a, a spine and leaf fabric, you don't really need SEDs at all. You don't really need adjacencies. You don't need per-interface labels because you don't really have a lot of parallelism. No, between. no, you just need the list of hops. Right. That's right, yeah. And if you have a five-stage cloth fabric, uh, you are very close to three. If you yeah. wanted to do it across data centers, you are beyond three. Well, yeah. but the other That's thing correct. is, and I've actually done quite a bit of looking at this, is that given you know a limited label stack, if your network architecture and topology is right, you can still get a fairly tight path without explicitly identifying every single hop. If you can identify the strategic ones that will take it in the direction that you need it to go. So even yeah. if you need to do you know across the data center to data center, you can get away with that very likely. If you're trying to avoid just one bottleneck in the path. If you want to nail the path to a certain set of hops, then it gets more complex. Yeah, absolutely. You can also use a label as a, as a gateway and use that label at an edge router of some type to say, if you see this label, impose these four labels. Oh, that's true. <laughs> proxy segment routing. Yes, proxy segment routing. I mean, it is possible to do that. So that is, that is another... <laughs> Let's move on. <laughs> we're, we're getting too deep for Yvonne <laughs> no it's disgusting 
<laughs> when we get into MPLS net. I just got a bad taste <laughs> in my exactly mouth. Exactly, that's what I oh. wanted to say. <laughs> Tom Hollingsworth would be so proud. We invented MPLS net. <laughs> nice. I need to take a shower after hearing that statement. <laughs> <laughs> so far, me and but the drill, pseudo wires, <laughs> split horizon, split horizon, and townet based SNP. <laughs> Moving along, uh, <laughs> SNP based network automation. Yeah, <laughs> there you go. Russ, how far along is this thing? Mm, depending on your perspective of how far you think far along is. We are currently working on getting an implementation of the ISIS bits so that we can test them. We are currently testing some, doing some ISIS testing at scale without the additions just to see how things, you know, what it looks like. You need a baseline to figure out what it's going to look like, right? Mm-hmm. Controller bits are in the planning stage. And part of that is, is as you say, traffic engineering. Do you really need traffic engineering? And so, you know, part of it is that's not as urgent of a need as just doing some other things that would be nice at this point. If I want to know more, can I go and read a draft somewhere or something? Yeah, you can read um, Draft White Open Fabric. Okay. And there's another draft out there, which is by Les Ginsberg and Naming Chin, which is a complimentary draft which is talking about how to do many of the same things, but in a slightly different way. But the signaling, the new TLVs are in that draft. If I can get this to work, I'll tell you what the name of that is. But it's draft um, Shen something. I'll see if I can find it. It's um, ISIS Optimism. Oh, we'll just put it in the show notes. Don't worry. Yeah. Yes. So you are describing the procedures in your draft and taking TLVs from their draft. That is correct. So you can look at those two. So these are kind of parallel, yeah, draft Shen ISIS Spineleaf extensions. And they have another entire set of optimizations that they do that are slightly different. So, for instance, what they're doing to compute the tier number or where you are in the fabric is they assume that all T0s, all top of racks, will be configured as T0. And then if you're connected to a T0, you must be a T1. And if you're connected to a T1, you must be a T2 type of thing. Ah, so they take the minimum tier that they see on the neighbors and add one. Yeah, pretty much. That's pretty much what yeah. they do. That's correct. And for those networking practitioners with the ambition to become programmers, is there any code out there that they could destroy? Not yet. There will be an open source implementation probably within the next six months, three months, four months, six months outside. I think it'll be faster than that. Yeah, it'll be in free range routing. Ah. Don't even say the Q word. Don't even. Don't do it. I know that's coming. Don't. Sorry. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I'm it'll looking be for another job. keyword and it's the only one that comes to mind <laughs> so yeah there will be a free range routing implementation at some point that's um, already in progress I'm already poking at the code and, and looking at architectural and structural stuff on it so that should be just depending on how fast things go 
it should be out there. And there are a lot of people who are interested in this beyond, I mean, you know, we talk about this being a LinkedIn thing, but the reality is there are a lot of people out there looking at this. IP Infusion is looking at it, and a bunch of other people are just looking at this and saying, this is pretty interesting. And of course, Cisco has the draft shin stuff, the ISIS extensions, which is kind of their version of the same thing. So I'm um, I've talked to naming and I've talked to less, and they're thinking about, from what I understand, they are they have thought about or are thinking about implementing some of this stuff in some of their work as well. Great. It would be, you know, strictly interoperable or not, but and I've also talked to Huawei. And so there are other people looking at this. I don't know that there are other implementations coming, but there are other people looking at this type of concept. Okay, so let's wrap this up right here. Russ, if people want to get in touch with you and get more information, how could they do that? The easiest thing to do is to either find me on LinkedIn or find me at rule11.tech or find me at the Network Collective. Oh, you mean at Microsoft Rolodex. <laughs> Microsoft Rolodex. <laughs> I do have an independent personality, though, at rule11.tech and Network Collective. Those are kind of uh, Microsoft Rolodex. <laughs> And by the way, you guys are doing some of really good stuff. Oh, well, thanks. Yeah. Absolutely. In fact, we need to get you on from time to time, Yvonne and Nick mm -hmm. and Chris. We need to, like, plan some shows and figure it out, what we're doing. What I need to do, Yvonne, is figure out what you've been in a part of the history of so we can get you on the History of Networking series. Oh, my. I don't know. <laughs> Yeah, uh, Jordan invited me a number of times, uh, but every single time it's either at some weird hour when it's past midnight over here or I'm on the road or something. So we tried probably half a dozen times and it never worked. Uh, we'll just have to keep trying then. Okay. <laughs> and Chris and Nick, where can people find you guys? Uh, well, I'm on uh, my blog. I've been blogging a little bit more lately at forwardingplane.net and have a Twitter account at Braulio and a LinkedIn account at Braulio. Oh, yeah. People should go and read that blog post you wrote about reinventing the wheel with the Python pseudocode. <laughs> yeah, don't yes. try to write I'm, I'm, uh, Development is not my core competency. <laughs> and the forthcoming blog, blog post about reinventing Flutterizen and Trill. Uh. <laughs> Moving on. <laughs> and I am available on Twitter as at NetmanChris, a blog post on controlissues.net, where I'm actually starting to play around with um, some of the Microsoft Azure Stack IoT stuff with these you know, strange new things called like latency that they're talking about, which is kind of interesting. So trying to, trying to get back to doing some writing again. Perfect. Oh, cool. And you can find me at ipspace.net, uh, where you'll find my blog and the webinars, or I'm at iOS Hints on Twitter. Oh, podcast is also on ipspace.net for obvious reasons. Thanks for being with us, and stay tuned. Thank you for listening to this episode of Software Gone Wild. If you want to learn more about software-defined networking, network automation, and related topics, visit sdn.ipspace.net and explore our courses, books, webinars, and podcasts.